1: morning everyone and a blessed and a merry christmas to you and a good morning and a blessed and merry christmas to everyone who's watching and listening here about the country and around the world we love you we're praying for you and we pray that you will have a very blessed week celebrating the savior's incarnation we're going to depart from the book of ephesians uh, this morning and i'm going to give you I hope and pray some good food for thought and for meditation upon the incarnation of Christ as this is Christmas week. Uh, God willing, Brother Dan, who's feeling pretty good right now, um, he, God willing, uh, if he feels good as he is now, continues to improve, he'll be uh, preaching next week, next Sunday and he will be preaching from the birth narratives of Jesus as well from the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Um, Pray for all of the folks who uh, are ill for their situations and circumstances and those watching us from around the country and around the world. uh, Pray for um, folks who may be traveling about this week that they stay safe in uh, traveling to see friends and relatives. I believe Lynn Papenfuss has the furthest to go. She's driving all the way to New Hampshire this week with her little doggie, so pray that they arrive safe and sound and have a good time there. Um, with that, <clears throat> let me go to the Global Prayer Guide a Voice of the Martyrs as we begin most of our services or just before the message at any road. The folks that I wish to Bring to your attention, brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray for for uh, today and the uh, weeks to come. Jot them down in your notebook. Remember them always, please. Our back, folks back in the Middle East, folks in the small nation of Qatar, just off of the coast of the Arabian Peninsula. Today's nation is Qatar, and it is restricted according to Voice of the Martyrs. Qatar is an extremely affluent country. However, in 2017, most Arab countries severed diplomatic relations with Qatar, accusing it of supporting terrorist groups. A few Qatari believers living inside the country must worship in absolute secrecy, while Christians who are not citizens must worship in a government-controlled compound known as Church City. Qatari citizens are not allowed to visit Church City. About 65% of the country's population is composed of foreign workers and roughly 6% of the workers are Christian, mostly Filipinos, Indians, Lebanese. In recent years, a few expatriate Christians have been deported for evangelistic activities among native Qataris. Nearly all native Qataris are Muslim and most are Sunni Muslims. Both the government and the community persecute those who leave Islam. Converting to Christianity means losing everything for these folks. And a small number of Qatari believers must gather for teaching or worship in absolute secrecy. Although sharing the gospel with Muslims is strictly forbidden, some Christians still take great risks to evangelize Qatari citizens. Qataris can easily access the Bible through the Internet. Through the Internet. And some travel to Bahrain to purchase Bibles. It is not illegal to own a Bible, but being discovered with one would cause immediate problems within the family. Voice of the Martyrs provides support to Christian converts from Islam. So please pray for our brothers and sisters there off the coast of the Arabian Peninsula. And I would like to mention uh, another uh, prayer request before I go to prayer. Charles. Uh, tells me that Deborah's not here this morning because she's having some more problems with her back, her ongoing back issues. So please uh, pray for her that she feels better this week. With that, let's go to prayer. Sovereign or God, our Heavenly Father, Ruler of heaven and earth, one true only living God, you who are the message and meaning of Christmas, God made flesh to perform the work of redemption, to break the curse over creation, to bring us back redeemed to Eden one day. Here our imperfect prayers, O Sovereign God. On behalf of all of those who have been mentioned and for our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus in Qatar, off the Arabian Peninsula, please help them to somehow find, to receive, to be blessed with more freedom and liberty to worship as they please. And may the gospel of Jesus Christ be free to thrive and to grow in that nation and around the world. Protect our brothers and sisters there from persecution and from hardship. Reveal yourself to them in a very special way to draw them to you to give them the bravery and the courage and the fortitude they need by the power of your Spirit and the truth of your Word to live wisely and well. Help us to do the same here in our country in its dark times. Help us to do our duty by you and by our country to defend freedom and liberty, whatever the cost may be, wherever this may take us, to stand as Christians for all the principles of Christianity upon which this nation was originally born and built. I pray for those who are traveling, those who are ill. Raise them up off their sickbeds, protect them all. Give them the power of your spirit in joy and thanksgiving and gratitude for the incarnation of Jesus, which we celebrate this week, which we should celebrate and meditate upon every day of our lives all the year. Thank you for these sweet sisters of our church who have blessed us with a reading from the word of the Lord and with beautiful song. Lead us into worship in a very profound and deep way. This Christmas, Lord. Please help us. Please bless and help our fumbling efforts to worship you, to attempt to get to know you better. and Reveal yourself to us in ways that we poor, pitiful creatures can understand. But of course, primarily out of the truth of your word. Forgive us for our sins, for our faults, for our failures. Clean us up, pick us up, and set us on our way to pursue holiness for your sake and in your name, and bless the passage which we will just scratch the surface of this morning, John's prologue, one of the most profound messages that any human being has ever heard or ever will hear, some of the most profound truth that we as human beings will ever be confronted with, the truth of the triune God and that the second person of the triune God became a human being in real space, real time, real history, according to a perfect plan. And this has changed everything for everyone and everything in this universe forever and always will. As Brother Lewis wrote, the grand miracle, the grandest miracle of all. Thank you for this miracle and what it means to us. And thank you for making us to bear your image, to know you and to glorify you forever and to be part of this divine plan. Bless all of these folks in their meditations this Christmas week, here, around the country, and around the world. In the blessed and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. My desk is full this morning, as well it should be. But forgive me when I'm rummaging around my books and Bibles and notes this morning. I have a lot to read to you and to make comment upon. I don't know if you recall, but earlier this year, uh, Brother James Packer, Brother J.I. Packer, a much beloved theologian of many, many years. Born and bred in England, he taught at Regent College in Vancouver for many, many years. He has written what many consider or argue to be or claim to be one of the greatest contemporary Christian classics of theology in which every thoughtful Christian should read, a book simply called Knowing God, which has had a profound impact on millions of people and has even brought unbelievers to saving faith in Christ. And Brother Packer, I believe he was, he was at least 90 years of age, perhaps 91, 92, somewhere in that neighborhood. But this dear brother in the Lord Jesus went to the Father's house this year after serving wisely and well for many, many, many years. I've read this book. I encourage you all to get it. I've recommended it before. I know I'm going to recommend it again. It's a wonderful book, a wonderful reference book. It's sound biblical teaching, saturated with biblical passages and verses to enable you to get to know the God who is the one true living God. And one of my favorite chapters in this book is Chapter 5, a book simply entitled God Incarnate. And I've read a paragraph or two out of that chapter to folks at Christmas here or there over the past several years or more. But I've often wanted to, at Christmas time, open this chapter and work through it with you in depth. Because I believe that in contemporary times, this is one of the best clear and concise chapters on the incarnation of God, the incarnation of Christ, the heart and core of the gospel, the true message of Christmas that's ever been written in recent times. Now, I don't have the time this morning to do that, but I would like to give honor where honor is due since Brother Packer went to be with the Lord this year, and I am going to read you one or two lengthy excerpts from this chapter to honor him on his homecoming. This is one of the chapters that I first read many years ago. And this chapter in this book really began, what really helped me to begin to think biblically and to think properly and to think correctly about the incarnation of God, the incarnation of the enfleshing, The taking on of a human body and a human nature by the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So I'm going to begin the message this morning with an excerpt from this chapter and end the message this morning with an excerpt from this chapter. I will also make a few remarks upon the prologue to John's gospel, which is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. It's one of the most magnificent parts of the Bible but I'm going to have to give you something of a disclaimer, if I can call it that. One of these days, God willing, I will be able to teach or preach through the gospel of John. And when that time comes, when that time occurs, I can promise you, whoever I'm with and wherever I'm at, I'm going to crave everyone's patience because we are going to spend some weeks in the prologue to the gospel of John. So the remarks that I will make this morning on the Gospel of John, the prologue to the Gospel of John, the Word who was in the beginning, who was God and with God, the Word who became flesh, we're only going to be able to merely scratch the surface of the depth and the truth that's contained in that prologue. But I hope and pray that these few brief remarks this morning will lead you folks into a time of sincere meditation and worship upon the Incarnation this week. I'll start with the beginning of his chapter somewhat devotional in nature it is no wonder he writes that thoughtful people find the gospel of Jesus Christ hard to believe for the realities with which it deals passes our understanding but it is so sad that so many make faith harder than it needs to be by finding difficulties in the wrong places take the atonement for instance Many feel difficulty there, do they not? How, they ask, can we possibly believe that the death of Jesus of Nazareth, one man expiring on a Roman cross, can put away a world's sins? Or how can that death have any bearing on God's forgiveness of our sins now, today? Or take the resurrection of Christ, which seems to many a stumbling block. How, they ask, can we possibly believe that Jesus rose bodily and physically from the dead? Granted, it's hard to deny that that tomb was empty, but surely the difficulty of believe, the difficulty believing that Jesus emerged from it into actual unending bodily life is even far greater. Is not any form of the theory of temporary resuscitation after a faint or the stealing of his body easier to credit than the Christian claim, the Christian doc, doctrine of bodily, physical resurrection? Or again, take the virgin birth of Christ... How, people ask, can one possibly believe in such a biological anomaly? Or take the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. Many find a source of difficulty there. Granted, they say that Jesus healed. It's hard on the evidence to doubt that he did. And in any case, history has claimed other healers. But how can we believe that he can control the weather? Walk on water. Feed 5,000 people at a time with a tiny parcel of food or raise dead people to life again? Stories like that are most surely incredible. With these and similar problems, many minds on the fringes of faith are deeply perplexed today. But the, the real difficulty, in fact the real difficulty, the supreme mystery, with which the Gospels of Jesus confronts us, does not lie here at all. It does not lie necessarily in the Good Friday message of atonement, or even in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the incarnation of God. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God Almighty made man that the second person of the triune Godhead became the second man, the second Adam, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the human race, and that he took his humanity without any loss whatsoever of his deity, so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was truly a human being. Here are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the very unity of the being of God and the union of godhood godhead pardon me and manhood in the one person of jesus it is here in the thing that happened at the first christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the christian revelation lies the word became flesh john 114 god became man the divine son became a jew the almighty appeared on earth As a helpless human baby for a time, unable to do more than lie, stare, wriggle, and make noises needing to be fed and changed and taught to walk and to talk like any other child. And there is no illusion or deception at all in this. The babyhood of God the Son was a historic reality. The more that you think about this, the more staggering it becomes, or it should become, Nothing in fiction written by any human being is so fantastic as is the truth of the Incarnation. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. It is here that many Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many of those who feel the difficulties concerning the virgin birth, the miracles, the atonement, and the resurrection, they have all come to grief on this. It is from unbelief, misbelief, or at least inadequate belief about the Incarnation that the difficulties in the gospel story, that's where they usually spring from. But once the incarnation of God is grasped as an absolute reality, all of these other difficulties should dissolve. If Jesus had been no more than a very remarkable godly man, a great moral teacher, then the difficulties in believing what the New Testament tells us about his life and work truly would be mountainous. But if Jesus was the same person, as the eternal word, the very person of God, as John writes, the Father's very agent in creating the universe, through whom also he made the worlds, then it is no wonder at all if fresh fresh acts of creative power marked his coming into this world, his life in it, and his exit from it. It is not strange that he, the author of life, should rise from the dead, If he truly was God the Son, it is much more startling that he should die than that he should rise again. And if the immortal Son of God really did submit to taste death on our behalf, it is not strange at all that such a death should have saving significance for a doomed race. Once we grant that Jesus was and is divine, It actually becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of this. It is all of one piece, and it all hangs together completely. The incarnation of God is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of absolutely everything else that the New Testament contains.
2: Brilliantly
1: put. and Oh, how true. Let me read to you a short, concise theological article about the deity of Christ from the Reformation Study Bible, which is located right underneath on the page, the text of John's prologue. The word who is in the beginning, who is with God and who was God. Folks, that's what the Christmas message is all about. It's about the Incarnation. The deepest and most profound truth that any human creature will ever be confronted with. You can meditate upon the incarnation for the rest of your life and pray God you will. And you will not plumb the depths of it or reach its limits. We will be studying the incarnation in eternity in the very presence of the incarnate Christ himself. And we probably won't be able to yet, even then, mentally get our emotional and intellectual arms around it it is the grand miracle and the most beautiful and unfathomable mystery of all and yet it is absolute fact like the weather we're having outside today is fact and it is absolutely essential this article states and i agree with the first sentence in particular faith in the deity of jesus christ is necessary allow me to add absolutely necessary to being a Christian there are folks who claim the name Christian who openly deny the full humanity and full deity of Jesus Christ they are not a Christian if you truly are a Christian by the biblical definition of Christian a person who in the words of Jesus himself is a recipient Of the new birth that he came to give us belief in the absolute deity as well as the humanity of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to being a Christian a biblical Christian not a nominal Christian it is an essential part of the New Testament gospel of Christ yet in every century the true church of Jesus Christ has been forced to deal with people who claim to be Christians while denying or distorting the biblical truth of the deity of Christ. For example, far back in history, at one of the most important events in early church history, the Great Council called Nicaea in modern-day Turkey, AD 325, the church in opposition to a heretic by the name of Arius, declared from sacred scripture that Jesus is begotten monogenēs in the original Greek. He is the one and only truly unique son of the Father. Not a son, the son, who is the second person of the Father, the second person of the triune Godhead, one in nature and essence and being with the Father. This affirmation declared that the second person of the Trinity, who is Jesus of Nazareth, is one in essence with God the Father. That is, the very being of Christ is the very being of God. He is not similar to deity, he is deity. The confession of the deity of Jesus is drawn from the manifold witness of the New Testament. The New Testament is permeated, is saturated with the deity of Jesus Christ, as the Logos from the original Greek, the Word, incarnate, in Christ is revealed as being not only pre-existent to creation; He is eternal in His very being. He is eternal. Who is the eternal being but God Almighty himself? He and he only. Jesus is said to be in the beginning with God and also that he is God in John's prologue. That he is with God demands a personal distinction within the Godhead. That he is God, of course, what? Demands inclusion in the Godhead. So in John's prologue, you have two of the deepest Christian truths. In John's prologue, he gives you the doctrine of the trinity, the plurality of persons within the very being of God. And he also gives you that deep and wonderful mystery of the two natures of the one person of Christ, God the Son, the second person of the trinity. He is perfectly divine. He is perfectly human. That is the message of Christmas. Elsewhere, the New Testament ascribes terms and titles to Jesus that are clearly titles of deity due to God and God alone. God himself bestows a preeminent divine title of Lord, kurios, absolute, sovereign, transcendent Lord and Master. God himself, the Father, gives his title to Jesus in the great Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2. As the Son of Man, who Jesus claims to be, Son of God, Son of Man, the Messiah, who is divine and a human, Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. Who is Lord of the Sabbath but God Himself? He claims to have the authority to forgive the sins of human beings. Who can rightfully forgive the sins of human beings at large but God? He is called the very Lord of glory, the Lord of heaven, the King of heaven, who is King of heaven but God Himself. And He willingly receives worship from other people and does not rebuke them for that. Does not accuse them of blasphemy for that. He receives their worship. Remember the Apostle Thomas doubting Thomas when he sees Jesus bodily alive from the dead? He refers to Jesus as what? My Lord and my God. And also that reminds me of a very particular word for worship in biblical Greek concerning the Magi, the wise men. Speaking of Christmas... If you read the narrative of the Christmas event in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2, the wise men, the magi, the sages from Persia, from the old Babylonian Persian Empire, when they finally arrived to the toddler Jesus, the text says they fell down on their faces to worship Him. Now some want to say, oh, that's just oriental homage and reverence before a great king. It is that and it is more. Because Matthew used the word proskuneo, and proskuneo means just that, worship. And is often used in reference to worship that a human being owes a deity. Now, I do not believe these men had a fully fleshed out idea of God Almighty and human flesh before them in that child. But I believe by the power of the Spirit who led them there, by way of that star, that when they finally arrived, they knew that some way, somehow, that they probably couldn't explain that the presence of God was in this child. That's why they were on their faces before him. And we should all be on our faces before him this day and this Christmas and forever afterwards. The Apostle Paul declares that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily do you get that he says when you see Jesus you see God when you want to study God study Jesus of Nazareth and that Jesus is higher than angels who can be higher than angels but God Almighty whom they serve and whom they worship this is a theme reiterated in the book of Hebrews to worship an angel or any other creature we very well know no matter how exalted they are is to violate The biblical prohibition on idolatry. The great I am sayings of Jesus' gospel also bear witness to the identification of Jesus with deity. This word made flesh who was with God before the beginning. All through the gospel of John says, I am something. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. Do you realize what Jesus is saying when he says, I am fill in the blank? In the original language, he says, Ego Amy, I am, I am. Does that sound familiar? From the book of Exodus, he is saying, I am the I am from the flame in the bush who spoke to Moses in the Exodus. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Moses. I am the God who is prophesied from the days of the early garden when your ancestors fell from the grace of God and I have arrived in the flesh i am the i am therefore i am your resurrection and your life therefore i am the good shepherd therefore i am the bread who came down from heaven therefore i am all the other wonderful i am sayings that he gave us he is explicitly telling us that he is god in the flesh when he makes those marvelous utterances in the fifth century The Council of Chalcedon, pardon the historian's love of history. Another extremely important event in the history of the world, in the history of the church, because they defended biblical truth in that council. 451 A.D., this council wisely affirmed from the Bible that Jesus was truly man and truly God. Jesus' two natures, they wrote, human and divine, were said to be one in a way that we will perhaps never understand, without mixture, without confusion, without separation, without division. And with that, we go to the prologue of John, the first 14 chapters, and a few remarks I will make upon it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. Of course, John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin, the herald of the Messiah. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, that's us, folks. Or so I pray. To all who receive Him, embrace Him, bow to Him for everything that He truly is and everything that He stands for and that He has done. To all who receive Him, who believed in His name. To believe in His name is to have life. What does John say at the end of his gospel? These things I have written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. He gave them the right to become the children of God. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God. Here's Christmas, and the word became flesh, and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now a remark on dwelt among us. That's staggering enough as it is. There's theological importance in that little phrase the word that we translate as dwelt amongst us is skenao in the original Greek. And it really means to pitch your tent. He took on human flesh and thereby pitched his tent, his dwelling amongst us. God the Son, the eternal word, took upon himself a human body and thereby entered history and came down to live with humanity and pitched his tent amongst us and dwelt amongst us. Does this ring a bell in the Old Testament? When God came to meet with His people in the Old Testament, there was a tent pitched called the tabernacle, in which God Almighty personally came down to pitch in His dwelling in that tent and dwell with His people. John is saying this is the ultimate visitation of God. The ultimate visitation of God by pitching a tent and dwelling with us. And that tent is the very body of God, the Son, the Messiah, himself upon his arrival. Jesus is the ultimate visitation, the ultimate revelation, the ultimate self-disclosure of God to human beings. That's the message of Christmas. Now a few other remarks. As incomplete as they are going to be with the time that we have before us. The most important truth of the Christmas narrative, the most important truth of the Christmas event in the Gospels, the paramount point made, delivered, is the identity of Jesus. It is the identity of Jesus. The identity of the child born in Bethlehem, which is the child born in Bethlehem was and is God. That child born in Bethlehem was and is God he was and is God the Son who is son of God according to John's prologue and the entire remainder of the New Testament for that matter do you know the four times in the first three chapters of the Gospel of John Jesus is called not a son but he is called the Son of God the only begotten one if we quote the oldest English translations Now, what we traditionally translate as only begotten is the Greek word monogenes. Monogenes actually should probably better yet be translated as one and only unique Son. Jesus is the one and only unique true Son of the Father. How is He unique? He is unique because not only is He God the Son, Son of God, He is God the Son. He is one in His essential nature and being with the Father, co-equal with the Father. He is a completely, utterly, and totally unique being as God. And as God, who according to divine plan took upon Himself humanity in order to save humanity. One and only unique Son of God who is God the Son. Now, the Gospel of John and the New Testament as a whole takes great pains to explain and make clear that this sonship, which is ascribed to Jesus, this sonship, which is claimed by Jesus, is precisely and exactly a fact-truth of personal deity. It is nothing else. It is nothing less. Let me say that again, because you have a lot of deniers out there. The Gospel of John, this text that we looked at, the entire Gospel, and all of the New Testament for that matter, takes great pains at length to make clear that this sonship that Jesus claims, the sonship which is given to Jesus by the biblical authors, it is precisely and exactly a truth fact of personal deity. His personal deity. Nothing less, nothing else. When John calls Jesus the Word, He means Jesus is the very authoritative, powerful, self-expression of God. Look, the word of God to a Jew in the first century A.D. means God speaking. God at work. God's authoritative, creative power at work in action. So to a Jew, the expression, the word, the word of God, means God himself at work. That's who Jesus is. God himself at work, in action, in and over his universe. Now let me tell you what logos, or the word, would mean to a Gentile. Someone from the pagan Greco-Roman culture. Because John's prologue is going to rattle everyone down to their core, both Jew and Gentile. When a Greek or a Roman would have read this for the first time, they would have been shocked, if not scandalized. Because the logos, the word, as a philosophical concept or as a quasi-religious word, the Greeks and the Romans, even with their pantheon of pagan gods, the Greeks and the Romans had this philosophical concept, this philosophical belief of this logos, this word which to them meant rationale and logic and reason, which was behind the creation of the universe. It brought rationale and order and meaning and purpose to the universe and kept it all humming along somehow. But it was an impersonal force. John is saying, you're all wrong on that. I'm going to speak to you in your own language. I'm going to speak to you in terms that you can understand, but I'm going to tell you folks what the real Logos is. The real Logos did create the universe. It is perfect wisdom and rationale and reason, which gives meaning and purpose to the universe. The Logos does keep the universe humming right along as it should, but the Logos is not an it. The Logos is not a philosophical concept. The Logos is a he, The Logos is a personal being. The Logos is God Almighty Himself. One true living God. And this one true living God, the Logos, who spoke the universe into being and keeps it humming right along in perfect order as it should, He actually took upon Himself humanity and He came to visit us personally in the flesh to save us, to reveal Himself and to in time repair everything that has gone wrong and make it right again and restore it. That would have shaken these people in the first century A.D. down to the soles of their sandals when they first read this. Jew and Gentile. And it should rattle us as well. And I guarantee you it does still rattle people. I promise you. As well it should because it's the most important truth, that they're ever going to be hit with, that they're ever going to be confronted with. Now, J.I. Packer points out seven things, and I'll use his format, if I may, to compliment him yet again. But you will find these seven very important points made in John's gospel, very carefully laid out in some format or another, in any good evangelical commentary of the gospel of John. But in his wonderful chapter, God Incarnate, J.I. lays out seven things of absolute importance that you have to understand that John tells us about the Christ who is the divine word in his prologue. Seven things to remember this Christmas and never forget about that baby who was born in Bethlehem. One, in the beginning was the word. Now, does this sound familiar? In the beginning. In the beginning. Barah barashid Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John states, en, arke en In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word. Put it together. In the beginning was God who is the Word. The Word who is with God and is God. Who created the heavens and the earth. Here is Jesus' personality, His personhood in the Trinity. But first of all, the beginning was the Word. This is Christ's eternality. He is an eternal being. He is the only eternal being. This is His preexistence. This is His deity. This is His aseity. Ah, someone looked at me. Aseity, what does that mean? I love it. Allow me to answer that question. One of my favorite words. A s e i t y, rare word, you don't hear that word a lot, aseity. It means self-existence. It is a word that can only be used in reference to God. Aseity means the eternal being, the word who is in the beginning. He is God, the one and only being who has the power of being in and of himself. He was not created. He was not born. He had no beginning. He is eternal. Now that baby born in Bethlehem entered this world by way of the womb of Mary somewhere in 4 to 6 B.C. in the Roman province of Palestine, Judea. But in at his, his humanity, his human flesh, that was an event in history. But in his deity, the Son of God who took on human flesh, is the eternal being who has the power of being in and of himself, who had no beginning and will have no end. That's the identity of that child in that manger in Bethlehem. He was, he eternally is, the God who always is, past, present, and future. And the word was with God. So here's Christ's specific personality. His personhood in the Trinity. He is distinct from the Father, and yet He is one with the Father. John is saying the Word, God the Son, in the beginning was with God, God the Father. The Word is a distinct person, and yet He is one with the Father and the Spirit. The eternal active relationship to God the Father and with God the Father. Another point that we should never forget and the Word, John says in the same breath, and the Word was God. And the Word was God. So here is the words, here is Christ, here is the Messiah's full deity. He is personally distinct from the Father, and yet He is one in His nature, His essence, and His being with the Father, a member of the Trinity. He is not a created being. He is divine in Himself, as the Father and the Spirit are divine in themselves. The prologue confronts us again with the beautiful truth and mystery, not only of the incarnation of Christ, but the beautiful, wonderful mystery of the Trinity of God. God is a Trinity. And John states, "...through Him all things were made." Now the next time you look at one of those pretty little Christmas cards or some program or your nativity at your home or some ornament on the tree and you're looking at some sort of representation of an infant laying in a cattle trough, never forget, he spoke the universe into being by his omnipotent power, by his will, by divine fiat, by divine plan, from the divine mind and heart of Father, Son, and Spirit. Here is the Word made flesh as Creator. The baby in the manger was the Creator. The divine Son was the Father's agent in making everything that has been made, John says. Without that baby in the manger, nothing that exists would exist. Nothing. He is God the Father's agent in everything that exists. (laughs) Everything that has existed. Anything that will exist. We find this elsewhere in the New Testament. All that was made was made through Him. And He chose to take upon Himself humanity. This being with this power condescended in the true meaning of the word to take upon himself the body and nature of one of his creatures in order to save his creatures who didn't deserve to be saved and he still bears that humanity he bore that humanity from cradle to the grave from manger to the cross and beyond and think of it he is still in his incarnate human body glorified now and risen from the dead and we for eternity will relate to him in that body which he took upon himself two thousand years ago another point that's important to never forget it's Christmas and ever after in him was life according to John here is the word the divine son John is saying he's the very source of life there is no life for anything except in and through him he who gave us physical life became incarnate in order to give us spiritual life. Rebirth. When you get into a discussion with folks about the origins of life, all you have to give them is one name, Jesus. Go to the Gospel of John, the prologue. He is the answer to the origins of life. And therefore, He is the answer to the meaning and purpose of life. Those poor, despised shepherds When they showed up, and they were already overwhelmed by what came crashing in upon their little world out there in the fields. But when they arrived there, they were staring into the face of He who is the very source of life. And when the Magi arrived after their journey, they threw themselves down on their faces and gave gifts to He who is the meaning and the purpose of life. Wow, that's the message of Christmas. He gives life, he gave life, and he maintains and sustains life. Even while when he was an infant laying in the straw, he was still the God who spoke the universe into being, and he was still keeping it humming right along, as he always had. And as he always will, keep the divine plan in the universe humming right along. And that life was the light of men. That life is the light of mankind. That light who is Jesus, the Word made flesh, is the light of humankind. So here is the Christ as the divine Word, the revealer. He is the revealer, the ultimate revealer of God to man, the ultimate divine revelation of God to humanity, the ultimate revelation of God to mankind. That's who Jesus is. He not only gives life, he gives light. What does John mean by light? He uses light in numerous ways throughout his gospel. One is spiritual life and spiritual death. But here, light means wisdom, knowledge, understanding, the truth of God, the truth from God, the truth about God. That's who Jesus is. And here, the grand miracle, the greatest miracle of all, which made all of the other miracles possible. The Word made flesh the word taking upon himself a human body and a human nature. I refer you to the writings of C.S. Lewis. Anybody read his works? If not, you should. One of his most beloved essays, one of my favorite, is an essay simply called The Grand Miracle. The Grand Miracle. And that article, that essay, is about the incarnation, which Lewis was obsessed with. He loved to worship God by proclaiming the incarnation of Christ and by meditating on the incarnation of Christ. He loved Christmas, but he loved Christmas for one reason. Not the man-made hoorah, but the incarnation of God the Son. He couldn't get over it. And we shouldn't be able to get over it. And so he wrote that wonderful essay, The Grand Miracle, The Grand One of All, The Word Made Flesh. The fact, the message of Christmas. The very meaning, the very purpose of the event that we call Christmas. Here is the word incarnate. The baby in the manger at Bethlehem was none other than the eternal word of God. The word of God who is God. God active in action in his universe and in this world that he made. But we're only halfway there. Now, I have to hurry up a bit for the sake of time, and I hopefully have given you enough to meditate upon this Christmas, and food for thought to meditate upon for the rest of your life, but you're only halfway there. What's the other half? The child born at Bethlehem was God-made man. God who supernaturally took upon himself by divine power and fiat and decree, a human body and a human nature. By the power of the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, he was conceived in the womb of Virgin Mary, a peasant woman in 4 to 6 BC in Palestine. And he entered this world by way of her womb as a real flesh and blood human being but not by the power of a man and a woman, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God Almighty working in the womb of a human being. We should never be able to get over this. The word became flesh. You see what John's point is? And the word he uses for flesh is sarx. S-A-R-X-X. It's not a rude word, but it's almost a crude word. It means the equivalent of like meat a piece of meat, flesh, muscle, sinew. The reason why John uses such a graphic word is he's trying to get through to you that God the Almighty really did take on a body. He really became a human being. You see, in the first century A.D., as hard as it is for us to believe, many people didn't have a problem with Jesus' deity. They had a problem with him as a real human being. Now it's just the opposite. Unbelievers have no problem making him a human being, but they don't want to recognize his divinity, right? Why did he become a human being? To perform the greatest rescue mission that this universe has ever seen. To repair the lost fortunes of creatures who were to bear his image. He came to be our sin bearer. He had to have a body in order to do that. He came to be the second representative head of a new human race, the new Adam. He had to be a human being in order to do that. The second representative head of the human race, of a new human race, who his redeemed people, who will inhabit the world that is coming, the world that is on its way. When he became human, however, never forget, he remained God. He did not become less than God when he became a human being. He did not cease to be God in any way. He was no less God bef- He was no less God than before his incarnation. He took upon himself humanity, folks, he added something to himself. He subtracted absolutely nothing whatsoever from himself. He added something to himself. He subtracted nothing from Himself or His divine nature or His divine attributes. Please think of the incarnation not as a minus sign, but always as a plus sign. He who made man became a man so that He could experience the life and body and nature of a man. Why? For what purpose? Again, this is the gospel. So that He could be our sin bearer, the new Adam, and so as the book of Hebrews writes and this is very important this is why he had to become a human being he had to be like his brothers and his sisters those of us who will believe in him and who will have new life in him he had to be like his brothers in every way because he himself suffered when he was tempted therefore he is able to help those who are being tempted for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he was without sin. So let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 2, 17-18, Hebrews 4, 15, 16 For we finite creatures the mystery and depth of the incarnation as well as the reality of the Trinity that in my fumbling way I have tried to scratch the surface this morning it is well nigh unfathomable to us limited created beings that we are it is well nigh incomprehensible but should we pursue it with every fiber of our being yes every day that we live One of the best creedal expressions of this deep mystery was formulated long, long ago by an early church historian by the name of Athanasius. Perhaps you've heard of the Athanasian Creed. He wrote, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. He is perfect God and perfect man, who although he be God and man, yet he is not two but one Christ, one person. One, not by conversion of the godhood into flesh, but by the taking of the manhood onto God. As dear old J.I. would say, our minds cannot get beyond this. Try as we may. We must content ourselves to worship and adore. Worship and adore this Christmas and always. And never forget, never forget, the child born in Bethlehem, was born to die, the heart and core of the gospel. His mission was to be the Lamb of God who is to come to take away the sin of the world, to atone for sinful, rebellious human creatures so that those who would believe in Him and have new birth and life in His name, they can be restored to being image bearers of God, the reason for which humanity was made in the first place. Born to die. To bear our sins, to die the sacrificial atoning death, to offer salvation to humanity and rebirth. All of this that I've been trying to explain to you this morning in my humble, fumbling way, all of this was for our salvation. Our salvation. Our salvation and for the restoration of this world that you see around you and the universe at large. What love is this? That's the message of Christmas. The incarnation was for atonement, folks. Christmas was for Easter. The manger was for the cross in the empty tomb. The incarnation is not simply a most marvelous wonder of nature. The Incarnation is the most marvelous wonder of the grace and mercy and favor of God Almighty. That's the message of Christmas. And never forget also what Christ did for us in His Incarnation. Don't forget this. Go home and read the Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2. He stepped down off His throne. He gave something up to take on a human body and human nature in order to save us. He emptied himself, as Paul writes in the Christ hymn. The word that we translate emptied himself is kanao, or kenosis. It literally means to empty something, to pour out something. It is also used metaphorically, and Paul uses it here metaphorically. And the metaphorical use of kenao or to empty himself, means he emptied himself of position and privilege and status. He gave up his position and privilege and status as the cosmic ruler of the universe and humbled himself in a way that we cannot imagine by becoming a human being to bear the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare would say, in our behalf. And so he is the model of humility for the universe for forever he did not give up any aspect of his essential deity. He gave up his royal robes, his royal throne, for a short time in order to come down here and rescue us. Let me put it this way, imperfectly. He's the prince who became a pauper. He's the king who stepped down off his throne and left his court and disrobed himself and put on the rags of a pauper, and dived down deep into the muck and the mire, and sacrificed Himself to save us, and pull us up out of the muck and the mire, and one day be rid of the muck and the mire forever. He humbled Himself to a degree that we can scarcely comprehend, by taking on human flesh and giving up his estate, his rank and privilege to perform his redeeming mission for a short while. But when Easter came and the ascension came, he put his royal robes back on again. He went back to the royal court, the cosmic seat of authority in the throne room of the universe. He took up his rank and his position once more, and he will never give up his rank or his position again. And from that place, there will be a second advent, a second coming, a second arrival. And it will not be in humility in a food trough. He will come back in power and great glory such as this universe has never seen before. And He will be proclaimed King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. And every living, sentient being, human or spiritual will bow the knee and proclaim that baby in the manger, now on His throne, to be King of kings and Lord of lords forever. That is part of the Christmas message as well, beloved. And the last word of the day, I give to dear old J.I. to honor him, who's spending his first Christmas in the physical presence of Jesus Himself. I don't want to leave that sweet, precious lady over there. But I can't wait. I can't wait to see God the Son in the flesh in all His blazing glory with no barrier in between anymore at all. We now see what it meant for the Son of God to empty Himself and become poor. It meant a laying aside of His glory, a voluntary restraint of divine power, an acceptance of hardship, of isolation, of ill-treatment, of malice, of misunderstanding, and finally, a horrible death that involves such agony, spiritual far more than physical. It meant love to the uttermost for unlovely human creatures that they, through His poverty, might become rich the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity hope of pardon hope of peace with God hope of glory hope of life thereafter because at the Father's will Jesus Christ God the Son the Word made flesh became poor and was born in a stable so that thirty years later he might hang on a cross and that he might rise again the victor, the conqueror of hell and death itself. This is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or ever will hear. That is the message of Christmas. The gospel. Blessed Christmas. Sovereign or God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word which you have given us by way of your blessed Apostle John. Forgive me for my efforts this morning, yet, O dear God Almighty, I pray that your Spirit will speak to these folks out of the truth of your word to bring them to you, the triune God, and to God the Redeemer, God the Son, the Word made flesh. Please let these words sit wisely and well in the hearts and minds of all who hear them this Christmas and every day of their life hereafter to draw them to you and to fulfill their meaning and purpose in life, to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.